The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning again. If you have your Bible with you, I would love for you to go ahead and open it to Judges chapter 4 and 5. If you have the YouVersion app on your phone, you can follow along in there. We encourage you to do that. You'll find all sorts of things on that app. Um, you'll have uh, an act, uh, a way to access our Bible reading plan that we started uh, today, this morning. Uh, we've been doing these online Bible reading plans, and we have a number of people that participate through the week. And if, you are, if you're someone who is trying to get into this, uh, this rhythm of reading Scripture on a daily basis, a Bible reading plan is a great way to do that. If you're looking uh, if you're someone who's looking for a way to get into praying on a daily basis, the Bible reading plan is also a great way to do that. So we just encourage you. It's just a tool um, that we didn't create, but we, uh, we use to reach out and encourage one another to grow in our relationship with God. Um, so one of the tensions that I'm feeling in this text as we go through the book of Judges, we talked about this in our staff meeting last week, is, is the tendency of us to read the Bible and sort of reduce it to, like, the moral of the story, right? Like, a, like it's a golden book of, um, of, of tales. It's really, it's really easy for us to fall into this, uh, into this tendency. And I looked up, the Oxford Languages Dictionary defines moral in that sense as a lesson, especially when encouraging what's right or prudent that can be derived from a story, a piece of a information, or an experience. Well, here's the thing. If, if you've actually read the Bible and you've dug in beyond the normal kinds of stories that we tend to stick through, um, you'll find that the Bible is not always prudent. The Bible doesn't always, um, always give us the kind of advice that leads to a happy, healthy life. We frequently read through Scripture and we are challenged by it. We're challenged to love people in ways that comes at great personal cost to us. That's not very prudent in the way that the world thinks of, uh, of, of being prudent. So the Bible isn't telling us a good moral story. Last week we talked about those texts uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, how, how Paul said that the Old Testament was written to us as a warning to, to know what not to do. And that sounds like it's a moral to the story. But the thing is, the reality is, our relationship with God is not merely reduced to good and bad. Doing good things doesn't mean we're going to get to heaven. That's what the moral of the story would tell us. And thanks to the grace of God, doing bad things doesn't automatically relegate us to an eternity of separation from God. See, when we talk about good and bad, we have to ask ourselves questions like, what's the standard of bad? Who sets that standard? What's the measurement? And as we talked last week in, in Judges chapter 3, uh, we can do things that seem right in our eyes, and they are absolutely wrong in God's eyes. Just because something seems like, just because something feels like it's the right thing for us to do does not, in fact, mean that it is the right thing to do. We look righteous, but on the inside, 
our hearts are anything but righteous. So the last thing I want to I want to do is reduce the stories of judges to like this cautionary tale where we all walk out of here and we just think to ourselves, well, as long as we don't do those things, we're okay because there's so much more at place here than just morality. Because morality is not enough to sustain you when life happens. We talked about that several years ago when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. Being a good moral person, when hardships and realities of our lives hit, morality is not enough to sustain you. And just over the past few days, our, our church has just been inundated with situations and circumstances and hardships and realities. I was telling Jim, even, even before the last few days, like, it's been a rough 18 months. We can, we, we can acknowledge that. I know you're probably here sick and tired of me saying that, but I'm going to keep saying it. It's been a rough 18 months. Several months ago, my son John was telling me he went to, he went to something with CSF uh, where he serves Christian Student Fellowship in Kearney, and the person who was giving the lesson was talking about, um, you, know, you know, when someone's in a car accident— they don't necessarily recognize all of the things that happened until after the car accident is over, right? Because you're operating on adrenaline, you've got all of this stuff going on, and usually it's after the car accident where, where people tend to pass out or people get really emotional because uh, like as that adrenaline kind of bleeds through their system, the shock wears off. And I think we're in this spot right now as a culture where the shock is starting to wear off and the foundations upon which we have built our lives are starting to be revealed. They're coming out. They're starting to show. And just what we've seen in the last five days is evidence of that. If you, if you haven't heard the news, um, Kyle Meininger passed away on Friday. The Meininger family is filled with far more questions than answers as you can imagine. And that is, that is only one thing in a series of things that have taken place just over the past couple days. This foundation is being revealed. The shock is, is, the shock is coming on. The adrenaline is wearing off. And, and what's really taking place is being revealed to us. And we can serve the miningers right now. We can serve the miningers by, by giving them privacy. We can serve the miningers by giving them prayer. So would you do that with me right now? God, we lift up the miningers family to you. And we just ask that you would comfort them. As we've spent time with the miningers over the past few days, there's a foundation. And when I, when I listen to Eddie and Kay talk about their foundation, their solid foundation in your son, Jesus, I'm encouraged. Because when the storms of life come and they beat on that house, it is the foundation that determines whether or not the house will stand. So we lift up that family. We, 
We ask that that foundation would not just be experienced by the Meininger family, but that that foundation would be experienced by everyone who comes into contact with the Meininger family, that they would all see the truth of what's really happening. They would see the thing that they cling to, and that foundation is your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So this week we're going to read through chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Judges. And I've, I've just called it the Gospel of Deborah. And here's, here's, the, here's the summary. God's rescuing his people and inviting us to join in his work of proclaiming the reality of who God is. Holy, loving, kind, merciful, patient, and righteous. Last week I told you a great way to read through scripture is to do so and ask yourself really three kinds of questions. What does it say? What does it mean? And what am I to do with it? So as we read through Judges 4 and 5 today, we're going we're gonna to kind of dance around those questions a little bit. Um, some of the sections we're going to read just one verse at a time. Others are going to be a little bit lengthier, but I just want to encourage you to, to follow along with me in Judges 4, beginning at verse 1. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So let's pause on that for a second. One of the things that, that the Gospel of Deborah is telling us is that the bent of people, our, our orientation since the introduction of sin into the world, our orientation is to do evil in God's sight. That's our orientation. The people had just been saved, rescued by three different judges, and they just go right back into that cycle of doing evil in the Lord's sight. Here is verse 2. Don't worry, we are going to cover more than one verse at a time in a second. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. We talked about this in our elders meeting last week. I don't remember which of the Daves said it, um, but he said, the Lord sold them. This is intentional. This is intentional. The people sinned and then they suffered the consequences of their evil. This isn't some, some random act of violence or this random act of another nation coming in and invading. This is intentional. This is on purpose. The oppression and the chaos and the death and the destruction that the Jewish people are going to feel throughout this book is all due to their repeated sin. And we have to understand that. We have to look into what's happening and we have to understand that this is because of their sin. God's not just randomly punishing his people. This is because of their sin. They're not innocent bystanders in this. They're willing participants in repeatedly breaking the covenant that they made with God. So God is judging them. He's holding them to account for their sin. This is a test of their obedience and as we're going to read throughout the rest of this book, they fail time and time and time again. They refuse to be obedient to what God is calling them to. Here's verse 3. Sisera, who had 900 chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. 
Words mean things. And as we've talked over the past few weeks, what we're seeing is just more worldly sorrow. Here's what the Israelites are asking for. They're asking that God relieve their suffering. And there is a world of difference between relieve my suffering and forgive my sins. And the Israelites are in this space where they're being oppressed, where they're being persecuted, where these nations are coming against them. And what do they say? Relieve our suffering. God, take this from me. There is zero self-reflection. And if you've read through the text, you'll see that eventually they get to some self-reflection, but it's after about six of these cycles. And even then, it only lasts for a moment. So something that we have to ask ourselves is when we think about the way that we interact with God in the midst of hardship, and boy, do I want to be careful in talking about this. Because we live in a fallen world. And not every, every consequence or every, every bad thing that happens to us is a result of our sin. There's, there's scripture where Jesus has even asked that question, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? And Jesus is like, you guys have this all wrong. He's, he's blind so that the glory of God may be seen in him. But we have to, we have to understand, again, like the context here is these are some wicked, sinful people. People. And in the midst of this suffering, and they know what it is. They just want their suffering relieved. They actually don't want to repent. Here's verses 4 and 5. Deborah, the wife of Lepidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at the time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. What I love by this is this little flip. So far, whenever the Israelites have cried out to God, what they've gotten is a judge, what they've gotten is a rescuer. And now something interesting takes place. Instead of getting a rescuer, or in addition to getting a rescuer, they get a prophet. See, what God is teasing out in them is they just don't need to be rescued from their consequences. They need to hear the truth and the reality of who God is in their life. So he, he sends them a prophet. And we talked about this in Revelation. Um, in the world of the Bible, prophets were those who had a radical encounter with God's presence and were sent to do three things. They were to remind Israel of their role. They were to communicate how the events of their day fit into God's story. And they were to communicate the cosmic meaning of of Israel's history. That's what a prophet does. We tend to think that a um, Sister Cleo is a prophet. We dial an 800 number and someone tells us our future. That's not biblically what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who tells the people of what God is doing and orients them around God. And then she was also a judge raised up by God and a, to be a rescuer of the people. I want you to listen as we read through the rest of this text today. Listen to the way God acts as judge, or Deborah acts as prophet and judge. If you're looking for a way, if you've been thinking like, man, I would really like to get into studying the Bible more, I would like to learn how to do this, an easy thing, a simple thing for you to do would be get a piece of paper, 
draw a line down the middle, prophet, judge, and read through the rest of the text. How is Deborah being a prophet? How is Deborah being a judge? These are verses 6 to 10. One day she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor, and I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's armies, along with his chariots and warriors, to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. Barak told her, I will go, but only if you go with me. Very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak at Kadesh. At Kadesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. Deborah also went with him. What's interesting in this little vignette, this little scene, is that God has commanded Barak. And we're going to see this again a little later in the story, where God commands Barak to do this thing, and he tells him that he's going to have victory, so that's never in doubt, that's never in question. And what's interesting is um, he says to Deborah, well, only if you go with me. So again, there's like this little, as we've, as we've gone through the judges, um, we've, we've seen Othniel and Ehud, and Shamgar really living in, in, in obedience to what God is calling them to. And now we have this, this barrack, and it just like, just ever so slightly, we're seeing God, people who are called out by God to deliver his people. Where There's little cracks are starting to appear. Well, I, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do that, but um, Deborah, I need you to go with me. Like, I'm not so sure that God can really do this thing. So I need you to go with me. One of the things that we can see in this is, is that God uses others to call us to obedience. God uses others to call us to obedience. I think some of us, when, when we hear that, when we hear someone else calling us to obedience, we don't want anything to do with it. Right? Because we are waiting for a word from the Lord. Well, what if God is using someone else? Can you entertain that possibility? That God is using someone else to call you to obedience? And I love that she says, you'll receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over sister will be at the hands of a woman. Now, if we just stopped here, we would all be thinking this is going to be Deborah, Right? It's going to be Deborah. She's talking about herself. Well, not so fast. Here's verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and had pitched his tent by the oak of Zananim near Kadesh. That verse on the surface seems like it has, like, why is that here? What's the purpose of this text. It's going to show up in a minute, and that's why there are no idle words in Scripture. See, sometimes we read the Bible, 
Like especially, you know, you that Bible reading plan in February where you're like knee deep in Leviticus and you're like, what in the world is this talking about? So I'm just going to skip to the good stuff. See, there are no idle words in Scripture. Everything is in here for a reason, and it's going to come up in a minute. Here's verses 12 to 24. I told you we were just going to hit the accelerator here. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all his warriors, and they marched from Harasheth, Hagoyim, to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready, this is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. Like, this is where you want to close your eyes for a second and just, like, imagine if this were a movie scene. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, Barak attacked, that's hilarious, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy our enemy army all the way to Harasheth Hagoyim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one of them was left alive. Meanwhile, Sisera ran into the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazor. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. Stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes in and asks you if there is anyone here, say no. But when Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion, Jael quietly crept up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in his hand, her hand. Then she drove the tent peg through his temple and into the ground, and so he died. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went to meet with him. She said, come, I will show you the man you are looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with the tent peg through his temple. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. See, it seems like in this moment, there's unity among at least some of the tribes. These are people, when they entered into the promised land, they each went to their own space and they got territorial. We're going to read more in a moment of, of what that really looked like because there were multiple tribes actually who had been invited to this little battle. But what we're seeing is, is there's unity when God's people join together. There's unity. That creates unity. It is unity. It's a demonstration of unity, but it also creates unity. And now these idle words from verse 11 now matter. As I was thinking about that, we never know what plans God has for us. We never know when he's going to invite us or how he's going to invite us to join him in what he's doing. See, like they probably thought they were just moving there. And I think for us, we can get, we can get so wrapped up in our own situations, our own circumstances of our lives, 
that we can't imagine God ever doing anything with us. And what God is simply calling us to is obedience. He's calling us to different things like moving away from our family and being perfectly set up and perfectly orchestrated to be a part of delivering God's people. And we talk about this all the time. You're in your neighborhood for a reason. Maybe it was, maybe the price was great. Maybe it was close to a school. Maybe it had everything you wanted it to have. But you're in your neighborhood for a reason. You are where you live for a reason. You're where you work for a reason. You are where you go to school for a reason. And if, if, if you could somehow grasp that, if you could somehow wrap your mind around the reality that God has placed you where you are for a reason, you would do so much work for who God is and what he's doing. What God has done by placing you where you are is invited you to be a part of what he's doing, where you are. And that's why what we do at Westway is never about get, invite someone to come to church so, so they'll hear the gospel message. Invite someone to come to church so they'll hear the great musicians that we have or they'll run into the awesome people. And that, I mean, every one of those things is true. We want people to experience all of those things, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is you are called to live out the good news of Jesus Christ in your neighborhood. And if, honestly, if you're not going to tell the people in your neighborhood about Jesus, like, don't just bring them here and drop them off. This is our responsibility. This is verses 1 to 7 of chapter 5. On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. Israel's leaders took charge and the people gladly followed. Praise the Lord. Listen, you kings, pay attention, you mighty rulers. For I will sing to the Lord. I will make music to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you set out from Seir and marched across the fields of Edom, the earth trembled and the cloudy skies poured rain. The mountains quaked in the presence of the Lord, the God of Mount Sinai, in the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, and in the days of Jael, people avoided the main roads, and travelers stayed on winding pathways. There were few people left in the villages of Israel until Deborah arose as a mother for Israel. See, this just gives us more insight. Last week, we talked very briefly about Shamgar, and we only have like a verse. This tells us a little bit more information of the state of Israel when Shamgar was the judge. The people were doing what was right in their own eyes, and it did not lead to freedom. It only led to fear. Our culture tells us the exact opposite. Our cultural lie says, do whatever you want to, and you will have freedom. Do whatever you want to, and your life will be great. You know that's a lie, right? Don't, don't just say yes. Because we, like we're, that's the air we breathe. Is doing what we want brings freedom. 
everything around us is, is singing us that gospel. Do what you want. You'll be whole. You'll be complete. You'll be fulfilled. You will have freedom. And we're, only, we're barely five chapters in. I'm not seeing a lot of freedom. We're seeing a lot of fear. This is verse 5, chapter 5, verse 8. When Israel chose new gods, war erupted at the city gates, yet not a shield or spear could be seen among 40,000 warriors in Israel. And here's, here's what's going on here. The Israelites had no weapons. If we were to flip ahead into 1 Samuel 13, what we'll find out is they were prohibited by the Philistines from actually having weapons. They weren't allowed to have swords. They weren't allowed to have spears. So what God's people did, like we talked last week, is they used what they had. Ehud makes his own dagger. Shamgar uses an ox goad. See, the gospel that Deborah teaches is that there is strength and weakness. It is not when we are strong that we are strong, but it is when we are weak that he is strong. They were doomed to fail. They have all these people going out to fight against 900 chariots. That's doomed to fail. The Israelites didn't have any chariots. And I know, like we think, well, 10,000 versus 900, those are pretty good odds for the Israelites. Well, except the 900 of chariots. Weapons of war. These people are schooled in war. They have to be dependent on God's strength. This is verses 9 to 18. My heart is with the commanders of Israel for those who volunteered for war. Praise the Lord. Consider this, you who ride on fine donkeys, you who sit on fancy saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road. Listen to the village musicians gathered at the watering holes. They recount the righteous victories of the Lord and the victories of his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord marched down to the city gates. Wake up, Deborah, wake up. Wake up, wake up, and sing a song. Arise, Barak, lead your captives away, son of Abinoam. Down from Tabor marched a few against the nobles. The people of the Lord marched down against mighty warriors. They came down from Ephraim, a land that once belonged to the Amalekites. They followed you, Benjamin, with your troops. From Machir, the commanders marched down. From Zebulun came those who carry a commander's staff. The princes of Issachar were with Deborah and Barak. They followed Barak, rushing into the valley. But in the tribe of Reuben, listen carefully to what is taking place here. But in the tribe of Reuben, there was great indecision. Why did you sit at home among the sheep flocks? to hear the shepherds whistle for their flocks. Yes, in the tribe of Reuben, there was great indecision. Gilead remained east of the Jordan. And why did Dan stay home? Asher sat unmoved at the seashore, remaining in his harbors. But Zebulun risked his life, as did Naphtali on the heights of the battlefield. See, when we read through chapter 4, we we sort of had this, had this mindset that, that not all of the tribes were invited. 
But chapter 5 actually reveals a different story. What chapter 5 reveals is that only two tribes out of 11 actually showed up. I did the math. I had to use a calculator for this. Um, That's 18%. Why would only some of the tribes show up to participate while the others didn't? It's been said that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. You probably heard that. This math to me is just so interesting. Why is it that not every tribe, they, right, they all cried out to God. The Israelites asked for deliverance. But when it came to actually participating in what God was doing, the bulk of them decided not to. I asked the elders last week as we were talking about this because, you know, we've been talking about serving a lot over the past couple months. So here it is again. I told the elders, I'd, I'd really like for your prayer because I'm, I'm not, like, I'm just not sure how to talk about this. I'm not sure how to, how to have a conversation about this. And I don't want to fall into this place of, of guilting and shaming. Um, because inviting people to participate is not guilting and shaming. Dave Robinson said, well, now some people, though, even the mention of inviting them to serve is going to cause people to feel guilt and shame. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I kind of decided over the, over the course of the week that Um, if an invitation for you to join in what God is doing leads you to feel guilty or feel bad or ashamed because you're not participating, I'm not going to bear that. I just want to invite you. Because as as, as we've seen these these hardships happening, um, again, like, It hasn't just been the last four or five days. It's been a while. But as we've seen these hardships happening, we've also seen all of these other things taking place. Over the past few months, we've seen a number of baptisms. We've seen people become members of our church. We've seen new people come and get engaged and get involved. And I don't think that those two opposite things of challenge and hardship and good things happening, I, I don't think that's a coincidence. We shouldn't be surprised, we shouldn't be caught off guard when hardships come, when, when things are going well and things are happening on a, on a spiritual sense to the positive. So, just going to invite you again to, to join in what's happening here. It's going to take more than 18%. And here's the thing. Like, God did it with 18%. So some of us might be in this space where we're going to think, like, well, then I'm not really needed, because if it's happening with 18%, I'm not really needed. These aren't exactly words of praise for these differing tribes, are they? We were all out fighting the battle while you were at the seashore. I mean, that's the Mulholland translation of that. 
You were at the beach while we were delivering God's people. This is verses 19 through 31. The kings of Canaan came and fought at Tanek near Megiddo's springs, but they carried off no silver treasures. The stars fought from heaven, and the stars in their orbits fought against Sisera. The Kishon River swept them away, that ancient torrent, the Kishon. March on with courage, my soul. Then the horse's hooves hammered in the ground, the galloping, galloping of Sisera's mighty steeds. Let the people of Moraz be cursed, said the angel of the Lord. Let them be utterly cursed because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty warriors. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. May she be blessed above all women who live in tents. Sisera asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him yogurt. Then with her right hand, she reached for the tent peg and with her right hand for the left hand, she reached for the tent peg and with her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera with a hammer, crushing his head. With a shattering blow, she pierced his temple. He sank, he fell, he lay still at her feet and where he sank, there he died. From the window, Sisera's mother looked out. Through the window, she watched for his return saying, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why don't we hear the sound of chariot wheels? Her wise women answer, and she repeats these words to herself. They must be dividing the captured plunder with a woman or two for every man. There will be colorful robes for Sisera and a colorful embroidered robes for me. Yes, the plunder will include colorful robes embroidered on both sides. Like, this is the celebration of sin. We see that, right? Sisera's mother is so used to him winning that she, she brings her all of the plunder from, her, from his, her son's victories. How callous, how cold do you have to be? Like, that that's how you live your life. Verse 31. Lord, may all your enemies die like Sisera. But may those who love you rise like the sun in all its power. Then there was peace in the land for 40 years. Can you imagine that for a minute? After all of that work, after all of that effort, they got 40 years. It was the best they could do. It was 40 years. And there's a reason for that because this isn't, this isn't a morality tale of try harder, be better, do better. Beneath all the mud and the blood and the gore is something else. A call to obedience and a call to surrender to God's will for your life. That's what this is about. The best that humanity can do at this point in the story, is 40 years. This morning I was reading from this devotional book. It's called, the, it's called Jesus Centered Daily. And the text to read was, was Mark 10, verses 17 to 27. And it's a scene where this person comes up to Jesus and he asks the question, maybe that you've asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever asked that question? 
Maybe you haven't asked it that way. Maybe you've said, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to be a Christian? What do I have to do to go to heaven? What do I have to do to escape hell? What do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, well, let's talk about the commandments. Don't kill, don't steal, honor your father and mother. Do all of those things. And the man says, well, I've done all those things or haven't done those things. I'm a good moral person. And then Jesus says this, well, what you ought to do is sell everything you have, give your money to the poor, and then follow me. See, what what Jesus is interested in is us living out the kingdom life that he's called us to. Not following a bunch of rules. I'm just going to read this, and then we're going to pray. What does it take to be a good person? Someone heaven-ready. In the award-winning satirical comedy, The Good Place, an angel tells a crowd of new arrivals that they've made it to heaven and explains the complex points system that made it all possible. Welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But how do we know that you were good people? Well, during your time on earth, every one of your actions had a positive or negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created out some amount of good or bad. Now, there are people actually believe this, and maybe some of you do in the room. When your time on earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here to the good place. And what Rick says is, author of this, he says, later we find out that the point system is actually created in hell, not heaven. Assigning points to good and bad behavior sounds fair, but it's more like torture. When the young man approaches Jesus to show off his high score, Jesus replies slyly, Why do you call me good? Only good, only God is truly good. It is our attachment to goodness, not our false attainment, that opens the door to eternal life. See, we only have access to the good place not because of our morality but because of what Jesus has done and this text that we're going to read is only going to get worse if you have not read through it I just want you so desperately to read through this book I want you to see the conclusion that people who do right in their own eyes are not right in the sight of God And the only fix is a connection with Jesus. He doesn't want us to just do good things. He wants us to be his. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you and we are thankful for your work in our lives. I pray that for those of us that are that are seeking the good place out of our own personal morality, 
that we would cast that aside, that we would see it's not enough. It can't bear the weight. And that's why so many of us go from one thing to another, to another, to another. It's why for so many of us, so deep in our souls, we are desperately unhappy. Because we placed our hope and our trust in anything but you. And this, this text is designed to reveal to us that there is something more. There's something real. There's something true that provides actual hope, that provides actual sustenance, that provides actual salvation. And all of these judges and all of these prophets are imperfect people, and they point to your perfect son, Jesus. Help us to respond to the invitation, to be a part, to not sit idly by while others participate in the rescue that you have called all of us to. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.